Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 89, The Cannibal Count, an example of late 13th century Italian politics. Noi eravamo partiti già da ello, che io vidi due ghiacciati in una buca, sì che l'uno capo all'altro era cappello. E come il pan per fam si manduca, così il sovran li denti all'altro pose, là vel cervel s'aggiugne con la nuca. We had already left him when I saw a pair frozen together in a hole, in such a position that the head of one was as the hood of the other. And as one does with bread when one is hungry, so the one above the other gnawed at his neck, where the brain meets the spinal cord. Dante Ligieri is making his way with his guide Virgil through the last circle of hell, the ninth, where the traitors meet their eternal damnation. Almost at the very centre of hell, where Satan, trapped in a lake of ice, gnaws on Judas Iscariot for all eternity. We are at the end of Canto 32 of Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. However, we are left with a cliffhanger and we'll have to wait until Canto 33 to find out who this man chomping on another man's head is. We discover it in verse 13 of Canto 33 when he says, You must know that I am Count Ugolino and this is Bishop Ruggeri. So, who was this chap nibbling on the nape of the neck of the Archbishop for all eternity? Well, He was actually one of the few characters I actually remembered from my studies of Dante in high school before picking him up again as one does in adulthood and actually liking him. I mean, you don't really forget a guy munching on another's head, even if you are a huge Stephen King fan. I did also remember the farting devil, I must say. Anyway, before that, I can almost hear you say, why, oh why, Mike, can you not get us out of the 13th century? Move on, man! First of all, this story allows us to have an idea of what the politics of a city in the late communal period could have been like. Then, it allows us to touch upon one of the areas of Italy we have totally ignored for ages and ages, i.e. Sardinia aside from passing mentions, of course. We'll talk a little bit about Sardinia here, and more in depth in the next episode, which should be the last before we move on to the 14th century. Finally, it's a gruesome story, and they are always the best kind of stories. So, Ugolino della Gerardesca was a nobleman from Pisa, born in 1210 into a Ghibelline family of Lombard origin. 
the guy was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, since his family had always been chummy with the imperial Hohenstaufen dynasty. He became Count of Donoratico, an area that was then part of the Republic of Pisa, but is now in the province of Livorno in the region of Tuscany. He also ruled over a part of the Judicate of Callari, today Cagliari, in Sardinia, where Pisa had started to extend its influence. How did he get a hold over this? He appears to be involved in Sardinia as far back as the 2nd of March 1252, when he is nominated as the representative of King Enzo of Sardinia. He was the king that never really got to be much of a king. He was the son of Frederick II, but he was captured before the death of the emperor and lived out his days as a prisoner in Bologna. His claim to the throne of Sardinia, which didn't really exist, was that he had married the widow of one of the Giudici, the judges, let's call them, of Sardinia. So here we are in Sardinia. For the moment, we'll be content in explaining that Sardinia was divided into four areas known as judicates. These were Gallura in the northeast, Logudoro in the northwest, Arborea in the centre to the west, and Cagliari in the south. These entities were separate and independent, and there was no central ruling power. That is why King Enzo's claim was to a throne that did not exist. It was born and died with him. Having said this, most of the island was under the control of the Republic of Pisa. Trouble started brewing in the southernmost and most important of the judicates, that is, Cagliari. The judge there, Chiano, who had been allied with Pisa, decided to switch sides and ally with the hated Genoese. It was in the subsequent war to reclaim the judicate for Pisa between 1256 and 1258 that Ugolino was involved in a war alongside Giovanni Visconti, judge of Gallura, and other Sardinian allies on one side, and the Genoese judicate of Cagliari in the south on the other. The Pisans were victorious, and Ugolino was rewarded with vast parts of the western side of the Judicate of Cagliari, lovely seaside area. Here, he encouraged the foundation of an important mining town of Villa di Chiesa, which is known today as Iglesias. He would remain active in Sardinia for a while, and we see him militarily active again in 1267. The fact that during his time in Sardinia, and also back in Pisa, Ugolino had been in cahoots with Giovanni Visconti was a bit fishy. You will remember that we said that Ugolino's family, the Della Gerardesca, were Ghibellines. The Visconti of Pisa, on the other hand, were Guelphs. This friendship even went so far as the daughter of Ugolino, Giovanna, marrying Visconti. 
The 70s saw him back in Pisa and allows us to view one of the intricate mechanisms of the communal period. Here was the deal. Ugolino della Gerardesca and Giovanni Visconti were noblemen who had gone out and conquered lands for themselves in the good old-fashioned medieval noble style. The communal authorities of Pisa were like, hey, you guys are Pisans, so your stuff should belong to the commune. So Ugolino and Giovanni were like, no way, man, that's our stuff. So Pisa goes, well, don't bother coming back here then, you are banished. Giovanni Visconti ended up hanging out with the rebel Guelphs and Ugolino getting arrested and being forced to give up his lands, after which he was released and also joined Visconti. At this point, they came back with an army supported by the Guelph cities of Tuscany. In late 1275 through to 1276, the Pisans were defeated in a series of clashes, often by troops commanded by the sons of Ugolino, Guelfo and Lotto. In the end, Pisa was forced to give Ugolino back his lands. And they basically more or less made up at the Peace of Rinonico. For the moment, things seem to have been patched up. As we saw in the last episode and the second of Marco Polo, in 1282, hostilities between Pisa and Genoa flared up again, and the command of the fleet was assigned to Ugolino and Andreotto Saraceno Caldera. On the 6th of August 1284, Pisa suffered the crushing defeat at the Battle of Meloria, in which one of Ugolino's sons, Lotto, was also captured. In later centuries, suspicions of treachery, or at least incompetence, would be laid on Ugolino. He was accused of either leaving the battle early out of cowardice, or having had difficulty manoeuvring. However, these claims did not come up until around the 17th century, and he continued to play an important role in the politics of Pisa, and was later elected Podesta and then the captain of the people. So his reputation seemed to be okay at the time. He was named Podesta in 1284 and maintained the position for 10 years. The appointment of a man with Guelph sympathies, if not a full Guelph, took the wind out of the sails of the anti-Pisa coalition of Tuscan towns such as Lucca and Florence, egged on by Genoa. In 1186, Ugolino associated his grandson, also called Ugolino Visconti, to his rule over the city. The rule of grandfather and grandson took the form of an aristocratic reaction to the popular commune of the previous 20 years, with legislation limiting the power of the trade organisations. The main issue that many were interested in was peace with Genoa, and a return of the Pisan prisoners from the Battle of Meloria. The only issue was that Ugolino didn't really want all those people to actually come back, as they included quite a number of Ghibellines who could be a threat to his authority. Ugolino sought to undermine the peace deal by encouraging Sardinian corsars to attack Genoese ships. At this point, some of the citizens of Pisa were getting quite annoyed with all of the evident dilly-dallying, 
and among said annoyed citizens, we have the man we mentioned at the beginning, i.e. the Archbishop of Pisa, Ruggeri degli Ubaldini. He encouraged a rebellion that was initially supposed to be aimed at the grandson in power, Ugolino Visconti, and Ugolino della Gerardesca was supposed to be left out of it. But the bishop made sure that he was caught up in the end, and, ironically, it was Visconti who got away. Ugolino was imprisoned with two of his sons and two grandchildren in the tower of the Gualandri family, known as the Tower of the Muda. After the death of Ugolino and his family members, it would be known as the Torre della Fame, the Hunger Tower. The bishop made sure that it was clear Ugolino was a rebel, because there was a nasty tradition with regard to rebels. If they did not pay up the price that had been put on their head, then their captors would have the right to stop giving them food and water. Ruggeri used this three times to extort money from Ugolino's family and supporters. When they could no longer pay, the key to the cell was symbolically thrown into the Arno River, and no food or water, and not even religious counsel, were permitted. The door to the prison was opened only after the last weak lament had been heard, and the withered bodies were then buried in the church of San Francesco. So, that's the story of Ugolino della Gerardesca. An interesting story with politics, intrigue, battles and so on. However, as is often the case, some of the great legends come after the death of the protagonist. The question here is, where does the whole cannibal aspect come from? Obviously, there is no way of knowing how the last hours of Ugolino and his family members played out. The only source which was a work of imagination, brings us back to the beginning and to Dante's Divine Comedy. As the tale of Urgolino from his frozen hole continues in Canto 33 of Hell, things get more and more tragic. The children ask for bread. Urgolino himself bites his hands out of despair and frustration, which you can see in the famous statue by Jean-Baptiste Carpeux and then his children asking him to eat the flesh that he had put on their bones in generating them. Ugolino crawls around, now blind, calling for his family, who can no longer answer, as they are forever silent. Then comes the infamous line, Porsche, più che il dolor, poté il digiuno, which you could translate as Then, more than the pain, the hunger did it. Did what? Well, there are two possible interpretations. The first, which is now more accepted, is that where the pain of the loss of his family members could not kill him, the hunger finally did. The other, more ghastly interpretation, was that his hunger overcame his pain, and so he then ate his children and grandchildren or at least parts of some of them. 
This was the one that the medieval public, hungry for blood, went with, and they loved it. Archaeological studies of the bodies which are believed to be those of Ugolino della Gerardesca and the other four males which were found with him have showed that the diet in the eldest skeleton probably hadn't contained meat, human or otherwise, for some time before dying. Also, logic would have it that it wasn't very likely that Ugolino, at the age of almost 80, would outlive his younger, stronger children and grandchildren. These archaeological studies were at the start of the 2000s. However, in more recent years, a study has come out attempting to prove that the bodies found and analysed were not actually those of the men who died in the Hunger Tower. So, a little bit of doubt still remains for those who really want the cannibal story to be true. Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, starting from the second to top level, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Selene, Chanel, David L, Dean V, Eric W, Gordon Z, Greg, Ignacio, Old John in Milwaukee, Caitlin, Kevin, Marxist-Leninist Sicilian, Neville, Patrizia Kappa, Peter W, Rene B, Roberta D, Rodney N, The Question Master, Rudy F, Scott L, Shelby and Stephen, and the tippy-top super level, Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri, Sen, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, Brandon S, and Maxime. Thank you very much to all of you for your continuing support. Remember, if you want to get in touch, you can do so with questions, comments, or just to share what's going on in your life. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook. Or you can go to the support page, where you can support us on PayPal, or become a patron on Patreon and access extra content. Now's a great time to do so, as the most recent episode of The Sketches has just come out. Thanks again to everyone in any case for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. And what is your name, lost soul? Who are you and what are you doing, prancing around here like it was Disneyland? Uh, I am a humble lost pilgrim. Uh, Lost pilgrim? I mean people can get lost in the woods or among the mountain trails. But how dumb can you be to get lost and end up in hell? Well, I... uh... What do you want anyway? Perhaps I could bring news of you up to the world of the living. Hold on, I know who you are. 
We get to see the future here, and you're that guy who's going to write that comedy, which will bore the crap out of generation upon generation of high school students. No, but I mean, I will, I will write a great work in the language of today, and it will be an example of boring. Students are just going to hate your guts, except for the really nerdy ones. Go away and let me continue chomping this guy. Who is he anyway? He's a very naughty bishop who stuck me in a tower to starve to death. Aha!、Uh-huh. I know who you are. You're Ugolino della Gerardesca, and he's Ruggieri degli Ubaldi, huh? Well, well, look to Sherlock Dante in his stupid red dress. Why don't you go and investigate somewhere else? You and your dumb books and your crush on some dead girl. You're just mean. Oh, poor little poet! Have I been mean to you? Are you going to cry to your girlfriend Beatrice or your social worker Virgil? There, you're pathetic. You are the king of wimps. Virgil, did you hear that? He's being so rude. Well, you have fainted like almost every other circle of hell so far. Everybody's mean to me. Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E Media.com and find out how to submit your show.